Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. Write a review, share with a friend, subscribe, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got Scott Heckinger. So the loyal fans will remember Scott, who joined us just over a year ago. Scott is a public defender, but he's also the founder and director of Zealous, a national organization that helps train public defenders in getting them more connected to the communities that they serve. And he's also Twitter famous, close to 100K followers. Check him out. Today we get into crime rates, all the rave in the media right now. What is the media saying? Are they sensationalizing it? Are politicians taking advantage of that? And then lastly, we get into the local elections of New York City uh, for district attorney, but also the mayoral race. So kick your feet up and enjoy. Welcome back. We Scott Heckinger, one of our returning champs. For those of you who've been listening to us and rocking with us for a while, we had a pretty amazing discussion. Scott is a public defender here in Brooklyn, and we were really excited to have him on because uh, for those who are, you know, I guess if you're listening to us, you're probably pretty active in the news cycle. And across the country right now, you know, there's a lot of talk in the media around, is there an escalation? with crime uh, in cities. And, you know, this is a counter, a lot of this is um, in and around almost a counter narrative or, you know, some are trying to make it a counter narrative uh, to what happened last summer and where people were starting to push towards defund. So Scott, there's a lot to unpack here, but first, you know, obviously welcome and, and, you know, great to have you back. So good to be with y'all. It feels like both last week and actually years ago, as it was, that we got to got to hang out in person. Imagine that. I know. And we, you know, we actually have a great studio in Soho that we only used, I think, one time. So we'll get back there soon, maybe <laughs> this summer. But you know, I've seen you on Twitter taking kind of head on some of the articles that are coming out, uh, in particular, the New York Times article I noticed that was talking about the rise in shoplifting in San Francisco. And for those who maybe missed that article, can you give a little context, Scott, to you know what, what what's going on there? You know, it's 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 not even worth giving you know credence to any particular article. What I'll just say is that right now, what we're seeing in local newspapers, national outlets like New York Times. Media uh, companies, large and small, it's the same kind of sensationalism, lack of nuance, peddling of fear and prosecutor and police talking points that literally got us into the mess of mass incarceration to begin with. It's just playing out again. There's no surprise in this. It's just exceptionally frustrating to see all of these outlets just either be so gullible as to continue just, again, peddling this idea that, you know, the the strategies in heavy air quotes, the solutions in heavy air quotes that our society has been deploying and investing in for all this time is actually making us healthier and, and safer and that we should invest more in that instead of alternatives that haven't yet even gone into effect or haven't been in, enacted long enough to see how they actually play out. So San Francisco, I mean, it was basically, look, like the solution to, there's you know an up, increase in shoplifting cases. Uh, therefore, we need more police. 
we need to be harsher and more carceral um, without any kind of nuance around why individuals might need to be taking most of the folks who I represented as a public defender when they were accused of theft. It was because they literally couldn't put food on the table, didn't have homes, were suffering from mental health issues, suffering from substance use issues, and weren't able to get the help that they actually needed because we spent so much money on uh, police and prosecution and jail. And what we would see is they would come in, they'd be arrested, and they'd plead guilty, get out the same day, add to their criminal record, and would be even worse off than when they came in. So we'll talk a lot more about this over the course of this time. But basically, you know, anytime there is a rise in crime, any type of crime, police will say it's the fault of reformers. When um, and when there's when there's kind of a reduction in crime of certain kinds, they will take then credit for it. It's just an enormously cynical thing to be in a position of receiving billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money with the stated goal and purpose of, of making us healthier and safer, and then using the fact that we're not healthy and safer to invest even more money in a clearly transparently failed solution. I'm going to stop talking now. I'm, <laughs> I'm mad, folks. I'm mad. <laughs> I haven't been reading really deeply on a lot of the editorials. It kind of sounds amorphous, just like crime, crime. Do, do, do you know, Scott, if people... Uh, or even editorials are, are making distinctions around, you know, is, is it crime like shoplifting? Is it interpersonal crime? Is it lethal crime? You know, is it violent crime? Right? Because you're, you're talking about a lot of different categories that people just kind of lump into saying crime is up. Crime rates are high. It's, it's basically all of the above, depending on where you live and where it's up and how it's up, no matter what it is, police and prosecutors will use that increase as a way to scare people into any suggestions that we should try another solution and call, you know, and make it make it seem like, you know, the only solution is to invest more in what is, again, you know, proof positive that it's a failed strategy. What I'd say, though, is when we start, you know, start line drawing, I mean, I think it's easy for a lot of people who are not, you know, in the system, who are not work, doing this work. Uh, a lot for a lot of people to be outraged about fear mongering when it comes to the low hanging fruit, like the non non nons, non non felony, non non violent crimes, uh, non non sex related crimes, like you know crimes of poverty, shoplifting, theft, uh, drug possession, marijuana, uh, driving on a suspended license. But if it's violence, then oh well, for those crimes, it makes sense that we should have more police and we should have more prosecution and more prison. When in fact, the opposite is true. You know, one of the one of the most amazing books that I've read, I was going to say in the past, whatever, but really, really like ever, was Danielle Sered's Until We Reckon. So she's a, a pioneer of restorative justice, a, a theory and also a practice that to address violence and harm uh, and also drive home accountability um, to both heal trauma while also preventing additional harm you actually, over time, bring folks together and have them actually face each other. Um, and she's seen extraordinary results. One of the things in her book that she points out is that the very characteristics that define policing and prosecution, so shame, isolation, economic deprivation, and violence itself are the very drivers of violence. <laughs> so so even, even if we look at these, you know, look at the quote unquote hard cases or in some people's eyes, the easy cases, of course, like those should be criminalized. It turns out it's actually not so black and white. Um, and actually, you know, if we view violence as a public health issue, 
what we are actually doing um, in our approach to is actually making us less safe and less healthy. So to answer your question, you know, it's, it's, they're all, it's always cherry picked statistics and it fits this familiar pattern of, again, okay, crime is up here for these things. Therefore you're wrong, even though we've never given, you know, a change, a real chance and have had patients to actually see how it would produce better health and safety. We, we need more money to keep doing the same that clearly is producing a, a, a crappy result. Scott, is there a example that you've seen maybe a foreign government or justice system that you feel that we could be pulling ideas from? And could you share a little bit about that? You know, I, I don't even think we need to go internationally, right? Like I think you know, I think we can look to look some local U.S. solutions um, or changes where we've seen better results. Um, so, uh, for example, in, in Eugene, Oregon, there's a CAHOOTS program, a program called CAHOOTS, and there's other programs like it around the country that instead of send, sending armed officers or even armed officers with police social workers, they instead um, will send social workers to address folks uh, that are suffering from mental health crises. Um, the idea there is people who are calling 911 um, who are you know, family members of folks with mental health crises, or you see someone on the street, um, or you're, you have a business and someone's you know, doing something that doesn't seem right. Uh, police only wind up escalating the situation, only kind of increased trauma. And, and there's really only one choice once the police get involved, at least from that, their perspective. And it's bringing them, you know, bringing them in and putting them, you know, jailing them and, and, and caging them and prosecuting them. The social work response winds up meeting that mental health crisis with a medical informed, um, medically informed response, uh, which is the opposite of escalation. It's not even de-escalation. It's just meeting with understanding. In those cases, uh, people have gotten help, the help that they need. Uh, people have... Uh, the violence has actually gone down. Taxpayers have saved a ton of money. Um, it's been an extraordinary success. Uh, in terms of violent crime, too, again, just going to kind of the more what we call extreme, like the scary sounding stuff, um, there's, an, there's an increasing number of programs. They're called violence interruption programs in major cities like New York City and in Brooklyn, where um, they're really they're they're driven on a uh, they're driven by a restorative justice approach um, and a community based approach. To, so these these violence prevention kind of community organizations are usually led by folks that are in the community, are, are formerly incarcerated, or have previously harmed others or been harmed, so survivors of crime and folks who have who have harmed. Usually, there's an overlap, by the way, too. And and these programs too, instead of calling the police, they actually start at the very beginning and prevent violence before it even happens. And as it starts to maybe escalate, you know, in the terms of, of domestic violence or inter, uh, you know, gang related violence or just like, you know, interpersonal rifts and fights or, you know, they they're able to actually resolve things in a way that doesn't involve police, prosecution, jail, prison. Right. And in those areas, gun violence has gone down as well. So the bottom line is we can actually look to places in the United States where just meager investments like mm. test cases show the promise of this. On the other side, we see, you know, we, we can also it's like the definition of insanity, right, is like keep keeping it, keeping doing something that that, you know, is proven not to work. Right. Like 
we spend $118 billion a year, literally historic amount on all of the above, policing, prosecution, jail, prison, supervision, you name it, right? Electronic surveillance. And you would expect if that was directly proportional to the goals of all of it, which again, I, I think in, the intent actually is more sinister. I think it's for oppression, but they at least say if, if it's for health and safety, if it actually produced those results, we should be city by city, state by state. The United States should be the safest and healthiest society in all of history. And we're not. And so, so, it's, like, so it's like this few times when we've tried things that are slightly different, we see lots of promise. But we continue to get duped in large part because of the media where we started off duped into continuing to just throw away money at things that are harmful for all of us. It's not a, just a, not just an issue for black and brown communities, it's predominantly, but it's our taxpayer. It's when I say our, it's like white privileged, you know, unpoliced, uh, you know, unpoliced taxpayer money. If you're a libertarian, it's about, you know, civil rights and civil justice, fiscal conservative, you should care about this too. Don't invest in bad. We have a, it's a terrible return on investment, even if you don't care about human beings. So Scott, I, um, I was just reading an article today and it said that for New York City, from those that are 16 to 24, the un, I guess the, they call it, you know, those who are not in school and I guess potentially not in work more than doubled from 259,000 to 324,000. I guess, I mean, that's a horrible statistic, but also not shocking statistic. A year ago when we knew this was going to start getting really bad, it, even if, I, and I don't know all the numbers, it seems like homicide rates potentially have gone up a little bit. It's really interesting to look at it as like <laughs> the traditional good guys, bad guys, let's go get them, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's beef up as opposed to, you know, workforce development and opportunity and all the other things. What are you seeing right now? Is, is there any movement by the city to start taking on um, some of this workforce development issues and unemployment issues and quite frankly, even more, or is the, are the tides already turning? You know, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the short answer is I don't know, um, because all I've been hearing and all I've been focusing on is, you know, fear mongering and focusing on crime in order to like, you know, again, cherry pick crime statistics in order to support additional investments more than the $11 billion we spend on the NYPD uh, to, you know, do what they say, solve crime. And Scott, really quickly... I can you clarify to the listeners, I, and, and maybe I, I'm not, but no, nothing's been defunded from the NYPD. We're at the same, if not higher, correct? Yes. I mean, it's, it's you know, Bill, de, de Blasio like said, hey, we, we took, you know, $200, you know, 200 million or whatever away at some point, but he wound up taking it from instead like a different, you know, budget line that wound up kind of cutting into education. I mean, there was, it's like, basically, look. Let, let's say, let's even get him the benefit of the doubt, which this is not true. He he took away, let's, let's say, let's say they, they took away $3 billion from the police budget. We're still spending $8 billion a year on police. 300 million, I mean, and that's just, you know, that's, you mentioned school and workforce. I mean, that's, it's something like 300 million, possibly more. I got to look up the numbers. I'll figure it out by the time we're done. That we spend on on policing schools. And policing schools, what are the schools they're policing? Predominantly black and brown school, schools that predominantly black and brown uh, kids go to. We know it doesn't make those schools safer. Uh, it's policing the subways. And we're investing also in that for policing of violent crime, right? And like solving the really serious, scary sounding stuff, like rape, 
and 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 legitimately like in homicide and murder, their clearance rates, and this is similar, this is NYPD, but similar to the rest of the country, is in the low 20%. Clearance rate means solve rate. No, wow. police are spectacularly bad, the numbers show, at preventing crime by their own statistics and by them screaming crimes up. And they're spectacularly bad at solving crime. You know, wh- what we're seeing, what we saw last summer, and it continues to today, they're very good at being violent, at, at you know, shutting down protests, at hurting people, at kettling, at shooting people, exacting violence on black and brown bodies. They're not particularly good at what they claim to be. Yet again, we still, we, we still as a society um, somehow think they are maddening. So yeah, the short answer is, I don't know, but what I can say is the way that we spend our money um, makes it so that we cannot invest in the things that like are rational and reasonable um, and will get us back to a place or get to get us to a place where kids are going to school, where kids are learning, where kids are, you know, achieving, uh, getting into higher, you know, ed- getting support for higher education, affordable housing is being developed, actual real mental health care is being invested in and, and provided all, all the stuff in a functional society. Let's get to the um, sinister thoughts that you have about, you mentioned, you know, oh, I, or I think maybe there's something else that's sinister that's going on here. You mentioned the clearing, clearance rate being complete garbage, um, and it's seeming like they're not doing whatever the, goal is, the goals have been set out for them to do. There must be other goals that you know, maybe we should, we should consider and, and, and sort of look at. I mean, I always think about this like, you see the, you know, in like the, the long shadow that mass incarceration is just sort of casting over this whole conversation and stuff. That is, is a much longer historical conversation. And then you get like those evolutions of people that are just like, oh, well, okay, this isn't working. And then they sort of graduate to, oh, the system's broken. And then they graduate after that to, wait, no, it's working as designed. You see people like just sort of this evolution of, of a narrative around, well, what is it designed to do exactly? You know, what are your thoughts around what could be uh, sinisterly going on, Scott? Look, I mean, you just talked about history. You know, modern or our policing today and throughout the country, are, it's directly derived from slave patrols. There's a direct line between slavery and mass incarceration. And mass incarceration is a simplified word. And increasingly, people are using the word and they should. Mass criminalization, because it's broader than just incarceration, imprisonment, jailing. It's police and surveillance, too. Look, I mean, I think, look, look at the results. I, I, I was a public defender for close to a decade. I started out as in special education, uh, serving low-income families and kids in special education matters. And then, uh, you know, for, for about eight years, I was, I was working in Brooklyn. And just walk into court one day, low-level stuff. You don't even need to get, you know, for right away into, you know, the, the more difficult, the, the violent stuff, the things that sound scary that's a very small percentage of what comes through the system. And what you see is just courtrooms filled with black and brown people. Maybe like there's like a white, there's like one white person that got arrested for marijuana when that was, when that was illegal, but they're all sitting there. They're all facing, you know, a judge. They're not allowed to read. They're not allowed to sleep. They're not allowed to be on their cell phones. They just got to look straight ahead as person after person is called up to stand judgment for things that should not even be criminalized. You see that day in and day out, and and that's violence, right? Like that's what the system is doing. You drive around, as I would do, going on investigations. Also, just driving around Brooklyn and like from one street to the next or one quarter to the next, 
you know, it'd be a huge difference from the say Williamsburg or, or, you know, Dumbo when you would go to Bed-Stuy or East New York or Brownsville. You know, I didn't live there. I, I could leave, but it felt like you were in prison and folks who I represented would talk about, I mean, 19 year old kid, I remember distinctly, and this was very, you know, familiar, but I remember this, the one thing he said to me was like, I, I'm scared to walk to the corner store to get a sandwich. And he wasn't scared of getting hurt by one of his neighbors. He was scared of getting stopped and frisked unconstitutionally and either being let go and still facing that trauma or being arrested and have something planted on him. That's like the every day. And then right. and then and then you get into, you know, you know, arrests for 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 other stuff. And, and what you see is a system that is designed uh, through, you know, pretrial incarceration with cor- the course of effect of making you want to do anything just to get out of jail or mandatory minimums where, you know, you could go to trial and the judge could be your mom and they wouldn't have any choice but to sentence you to like three and a half years, even if there was tons of mitigation. And people are just pleading guilty and guilty and guilty, whether they're guilty or not, whether they were stopped and frisked unconstitutionally, et cetera. And so what you see is a system that just silences, that takes nuance away. It's, It's an incentive structure to plead guilty. So what I think is going on is exactly what you said. I mean, it is, it is, you know, I can't say that every single legislator that votes for laws that that wind up expanding uh, into this this vast carceral system, you know, is thinking in their heads, "I want black people to suffer and to to hurt." No, not at all. But but knowing what they should know, I actually think that there is that they're that they're complicit. Sure. And and buying into this narrative. They're complicit. And frankly, like, I don't want to say like, we're all, you know, we're all complicit, but to continue to get duped by these people and by this system, when we, when we know what we see, we see on the news every day, it's, it's, we got to start, we got to stop, you know, letting people, letting these leaders continue us to end this road. Right. There's a lot of, you know, social forces and you're right. It is not as, um, so sort of, uh, covert that people are secretly hating black people who are, you know, voting yes on these, on, on certain policies and so forth and, and expanding it. It is not that uh, literal. Well, in a lot of cases, it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, yeah, that, that's true, especially if you, you have a constituency to answer for. This comes from the public. Once you get to the to the point, you know, in the conversation, you're like, all right, well, there seems to be some incentive structures and some particular design to this system. Uh, you know, then then you got to ask, are things like workforce development even equipped to combat that? You know, is that investments in schools? Like, are they are they actually addressing what's actually going on here? Or are they, you know, Band-Aids on a knee that needs reconstruction surgery? Look, for, first of all, you've got you've got a budget problem where, in a, you, you know, in some places you can kind of do both at the same time. You can be doing just from a straight number standpoint, pouring all the money into police and do education. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, our, our budgets reflect our priorities. And in all major cities, in most places, most of the money goes to um, goes to the police at the expense of other things. And then so you have just like the bottom line numbers. You can't have both. But the other piece is, let's say you even were able to kind of do both somehow. Even if you had the best schools in the entire world, um, and uh, if you had to walk around every day, and again, I, I can't understand, I can't fully comprehend this because I am not black. For, for all you out there who can't see me right now, I'm not. I'm not black. I do not live in over-police neighborhood. I've never been stopped and frisked. I've been pulled over for speeding and had very, 
maybe some heated a heated conversation and I wasn't shot. But but anyway, like I can't I don't know how it feels, but if, if you have the best school in the entire world and you are still walking around feeling like a prisoner, feeling imprisoned in your own neighborhood, that is trauma that is going to pass down from generation to generation, that is going to infect your ability to actually pay attention, to learn um, when, you know, your family members are locked up, uh, when, um, you know, you just see the police every day, when people are getting shot and killed, when and when you're also like legitimately the, vic- uh, the a survivor of crime and, and the, the ways that we're spending money is not actually helping the, the situation, you're not going to be able to learn. Same thing goes for, you know, get sober, stay sober, be able to truly heal or, you know, get become stable if you suffer from mental health issues. So I really don't, I think you have to, I think it, we're, we're at this point where uh, it's very clear. It's been clear for a really long time, but it's, I feel like it's this moment. There is a moment where people are more aware of this than ever before. And it's not like reform, I feel like is a dirty word. Like, you know, it's better than doing nothing. But um, I think we need to like wholesale transformation of the system. Right. So, Scott, you know, that, that you know, a lot of people then, well not, or at least people that, you know, maybe in our circle, at least, I don't think this is a lot actually, would say abolish, right? I think that that wholesale restart makes sense to me in all the ways that we could come up with new services. The one aspect that I, I seem to never be explained that does throw me off a little bit, and I, I've brought this up before, is there still seems to be some semblance of a, a security force of some sort for those who are mentally off, violent, you know, abusers, so on and so forth, right? A social worker is still not going to be able to stop that. So I, I'm curious of, you know, where, what have you seen? What have you heard people address when, you know, uh, this comes up around the abolish talk? So the, the first thing to be, you know, to be aware of is, is, you can't, and there's no other type of policy made where the entire policy is based on the outlier, like the the very rare outlier case. Criminal justice is like the one area where we base our entire system off of these these extreme outliers, the, the scariest cases, um, these really tough hypotheticals. Some of the stuff that you just brought up. Um, uh, so j- just pointing that out, right? Um, you can't make policy just based upon those. Is, the folks- but is domestic abuse that much of an outlier? So with the, so domestic abuse, it turns out, first of all, that our system right now, actually, I'll just say it. The, the easiest thing to say is it doesn't actually help prevent Stop anything or solve right. it. Over, over fi- look, more than 50% of people um, who are survivors of violence, and this includes domestic violence, choose not to call the police because they are scared of the result and don't like the thought of the outcome from a standpoint of accountability, but also healing that a punishment-based approach would bring. Um, so I point to violence prevention programs. Those actually work, not just to bring down violence generally, but specifically also domestic violence. Allows like the community to come around and support people that are going through it. And we've seen in actual cases, not just like one-offs, but rates of domestic violence go way down. That's one. Two, in those cases where people did call the police in domestic violence matters and in more serious cases, or not more serious cases, in non-domestic violence, violent cases where there's survivors, um, when they were approached with the restorative justice approach, when they were explained, when, when they had that explained to them that there was an alternative to the traditional, okay, go to trial or plead guilty, go to jail and prison, 
91% of the time in Brooklyn, this is uh, through Common Justice, this uh, Danielle Sered's program, 91% of the time, survivors of violence chose the alternative. And so I just feel like that, that that's for that subset of cases, we can talk about others in a second. Um, but like those, those uh, cases of violence, if you're talking about accountability, but also healing of survivors, there are more effective approaches to prevent it in the future. Um, and also to achieve like true healing and, and, uh, and, and accountability in a way that separation just like wouldn't be able to take care of. You mentioned mental health. The folks who I represented who were accused of the most, let's say like heinous stuff, like the stuff that like you read, you would read in, in the New York Post or Daily News or even New York Times and be like, oh my God. You know, first of all, I should say I've... <laughs> I was consistently surprised again in the few in like handful of cases where I read the complaint and I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, this is the person who I met was always, it was always so much different than the expectation that I had going in, including folks with severe mental, mental illness um, or mental health issues. And so there's, first of all, this, this, there, there's not this black and white, like evil, you got to throw them away, like not evil. You know, I was always kind of taken aback. Like I would, I would go back expecting to be terrified sometimes. And this is after like years when I would read this and, and always, always being surprised and realizing also in these most serious cases, most of the time there was significant mental health issues that had never been diagnosed. Investments in community versus policing. One of these cases in particular, I'm not going to go into any details about, about the facts of the case. It was all over the news, but you know, finding out more about this young man and the and talking with his family and his mom and seeing it all the times when she was trying to get his IEPs, individualized education plan in check and was the, the schools were overlooking, when she was asking for mental health treatment but couldn't afford it, uh, when all these warning signs and no one was there to help her. And I forget how, how old he was, but but however many years later this thing happens, I was just like, that's an indictment of the system not an indictment of him. Um, and what he needed then, even though the system failed him, was not prison. It was serious mental health, you know, uh, mental health help. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the last thing I'll say for, for now is that, you know, if people want to really know what, like, no policing looks like, um, you know, uh, go check out, like, su like white suburbs, where restorative justice, they don't call it that, but people call each other and work shit out between them. Um, you know, where, uh, they, where, where problems are solved, where things go, you know, things kind of continue on and uh, they still go on to leave, lead amazing, productive, productive lives. Now I'm not saying bad things don't happen beneath the surface, but look, if you want a model, go check out, you know, suburban white land. Suburbs. You bring up a good point. <laughs> You bring up a good point about conflict resolution and institutions that exist to, uh, you know, kind of uh, mediate parties in that way. I mean, conflict is human, no matter what context. In the suburbs, people may be uh, suing each other because they have the means to do so rather than take it to the streets and take it to street justice. There's with communities and, you know, particularly segregated communities, there's a lack of institutions uh, that exist to handle those con kinds of very human conflicts. And then you throw on top of that, um, you know, disproportionately poor and concentrated folks, um, 
you know, without generational wealth in these communities, uh, which create more conflict. And, and it's just sort of like folks are, are, are uh, left to fend for themselves in terms of like, uh, you know, handling their own conflicts. Right. So it's, it, it's a bit. So there's that piece. And then there's sort of the reactive after violence occurs where you get the police coming in and the clearance rate is trash. So then that and then it sort of it, it kind of chains violence together where the initial conflict wasn't resolved. And then you got folks saying, well, I'm going to resolve this since the police. Are, and it's just like it, you're, you're creating this insanely distinct, like criminogenic environment that there is no comparison outside of segregated communities in America. So it's like, you know. The conflict thing was a, was a great point, Scott, but also like, w- w- sorry, I just wanted to ramble on that point one second, but also like, you know, we're talking reactive a lot. You know, we're saying, can we send people who are not cops, you know, who are not strapped? Can we send social workers and so forth? But it's still sort of the after the fact kind of thing. Some preventive uh, talks here and there, but it's like how, you know, how much intervention do we need on for the, the preventive side, you know, to prevent this stuff from happening in the first place? Like, I don't see how that happens without like, desegregation or integration or whatever you want to call it or 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 defunding right i mean like it, all of that stuff right the problem is we need to have patience for change right like it's not you're not going to see you know right. result r- your results right away i mean back to michael's point or michael's question you know you need to give you need to give things you know 5 10 years you know to to really take hold and to see what the what the impact's going to be but we're going to lose the house um, and, in 2022, uh, though. Well, you're going to lose, and that's just federal, but statewide, like any single crime. That's the, that's this country the thing, like, always needs single, its law and order. But, but, every, but along the way, any single crime. No, you, right. State. Yeah. And they always go back to it. That's what we're seeing in the mayoral race. I mean, it's like it's, you know, Andrew, uh, is it Andrew Yang. I'm so who? What's his first name? You're voting for him, right, Scott? No. <laughs> Yang Gang? Yang. Yang Gang? Yang Yang. <laughs> no, I mean, he's like, he was, you're, he was. You're, in, you're, you're voting him and Eric Adams one, too. God. <laughs> but it's like, it's like playing to the lowest common denominator. It's like, when in doubt, fear monger and like, you know, uh, talk about police and stuff. Anyway. It's so interesting. Like, you know, I lived in New York for 10 years, and but I recently moved to Atlanta. And there's a policing issue here for sure. Yeah. But I've noticed like there's so many more black police officers here. Not to say that that makes things any better or worse. But when I I lived in Brownsville, Scott, for like three years after living in Manhattan and, um, you know, going to NYU for a couple of years, couldn't afford it, ended up in East New York. You know, that's what I could afford. And it was like night and day traveling to the city to to meet my people there and then coming back home and the amount of police officers who didn't live in that area, but were just posted up all along our block for blocks and blocks. They were just there all the time. And, you know, I never had an issue there. I never felt unsafe there. But when I would tell people, you know, who weren't from East New York where I lived, it was just always a gasp. Like there was already a narrative, you know, like how dangerous it is and all that. But like living there, I just... And I know that, you know, there's there's danger and underbelly everywhere, but I just personally didn't, you know, see what everyone was gasping about and why there was just so ma- a need for so many police officers. And, you know, I would get stopped here and there. You know, I'm a little um, pretty, pretty stud, masculine, you know, queer person, but they would think I was like a Puerto Rican guy or something you know, stop me all the time. And then they see I'm a woman, you know, put a little charm on them, put a little smile on them, and they, they leave me alone. 
But like here in Atlanta, <laughs> here in Atlanta, like I I don't get stopped like ever. It's so, and maybe that's just a, a numbers game too, because the population is less, but it's definitely a difference. I mean, it's regional, right? Like America, it's almost like, it's almost like states are the sort of fifth, you know, the, the, the little countries, they have their own government, you know, that is designed the same way as the federal government at the state level, the local level. And then there's variances in terms of, of how draconian the laws are, right? And I, I, you look at urban centers, you know, you, you talk historically about, you know, like, you know, great migration, redlining, da 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 all of that stuff. We talked about plenty. But in the South, it's, it's, that's an interesting uh, distinction, G. I, I don't think that the laws are any less draconian, but the North has sort of a specific kind of, um, especially for really uh, multicultural segregated cities. I'd be curious to learn more about that. Well, I also want to... You know, I just got back from Tulsa just a few hours ago. I was there for the last week for the centennial commemoration. And I was also with a group of about 150 black entrepreneurs uh, for a program we're doing out there. And, you know, last night someone was joking about, like, is Tulsa a little, like, get out? Because, you know, it's very red, you know, very red state, all the things going on there. But, gee, I would have to imagine if you had a conversation with some of the black folk that live there, and they have, of course, there a, a lot of grievances, too. But I don't think they have a whole police issue like you just described in East New York, right? Yeah, they they definitely have their grievances. Like I've spoken to to folks who are from here about it because I I brought it. I've bring things up like this out of curiosity, and they definitely have their grievances. But I was just speaking from my personal experience of the amount of visibility that I saw in Brownsville versus different parts that I've lived here in Atlanta. So stark, it also just gets into you know, when we talk about kind of the South versus the North and red versus blue and, you know, the states, it's true. You know, federalism, this idea that this, you know, states are able to maintain significant control over most of the laws, the, co- the federal constitution is the baseline. It's supposed to be this great thing, right? Like, you know, state by state experimentation. And it is great in some ways because, you know, you were able to see in states even that went for Trump. They did, you know, they they did good things in terms uh, did good things in terms of criminal criminal justice because in a lot of these issues overlap between people who care about civil rights, fiscal responsibility, or fisc, you know fiscal conservatives and and um, li- you know libertarian issues. But here's here's the thing though, people just assume oh you live in a blue state, you're progressive, right? Like New York, Michigan, um, California, Oregon. What it turns out is is that in many ways it's it's worse, as bad if not worse. And what's more dangerous is that per, you know self-proclaimed progressives, us you know folks that yearn for you know a, a fairer, more just, less racist, more healthy or healthier, less cruel environment, we kind of get lulled into this sleep of well, at least we've got Governor Cuomo and Governor Newsom and Governor Whitmer, and at least we've got Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. Out in uh, out in Oregon, who are progressive on some things, but when it comes to criminal legal system, when it comes to people who they incarcerate, um, they surveil, uh, they're horrible. I mean, Governor Cuomo, forty thousand plus people in his jails and prisons during COVID. Uh, during COVID, he, I think, you know, it was in the single digits of the number of people who he, he granted clemency to. Instead of releasing elders, he transferred them to a you know, in prison. Uh, nursing home. Governor Cuomo vetoed a bill that would uh, stop local jails, California jails, from transferring 
people and in, in, uh, immigrants from their jails and prisons to ICE custody. And what we're working on right now, my, my organization Zealous, uh, focused in on in, in Oregon, is the fact that Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, who's progressive by you know any any you know measure, um, or at least should be, uh, you know from from a range of issues, she's been fighting for years, years to keep a racist law, non-unanimous juries, that allows black jurors' voices to be silenced. For years to keep hundreds of people imprisoned based upon this law that was passed by the KKK back in 1934. It's really important, I feel like, for folks that are out there and that, that you know, are living in blue states to not get lulled into the sense that, like, their leaders are using their power to do what's right. In most cases, they're either using it for bad when it comes to, you know, folks who are incarcerated and policed um, or, uh, you know, just completely indifferent to, you know, their suffering. So... I think we need to get out of this this box of of good and bad when it comes to our uh, leaders and and get thinking more about accountability and results. Scott, we um you know we were I was joking a little bit about the election, but we do have uh, an election or a primary in a few weeks. The most high profile, obviously, for mayoral here in New York City and also the DA. Um, you know, what are there any candidates you're particularly keeping an eye out on and when it comes to, you know, the issues of criminal justice reform, you know, what are some of the things you're looking to see out of uh, their talking points? You know, I'll, I'll answer the second question. I, I don't want to get into any particular candidates when it comes to, when it comes to the Manhattan DA's race, you know, one thing is everyone talks about progressive prosecutors and clearly it is better to have what I'd like to call forward thinking prosecutors in a prosecutor's office, but you know, prosecution by its nature is regressive. So, you know, look, there there are candidates in that race who are not former prosecutors. You've got, you know, and there's, 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 I think, haven't been following very closely because I'm just like letting it play out. But like, you know, I think Dan, Dan Court and Liza Orland, she's a former public defender. Dan Court was uh, fought for years in the state legislature for good when it came to criminal justice and reform. Uh, I'm looking, though, like for in general, for for candidates that are as least carceral as possible, who are not just laying down, you know, ideas and, and different ideas, not just saying kind of buzzwords like we're going to prosecute less. I'm looking for folks. And frankly, there's there's just not enough of it who are willing to talk about the really difficult, difficult stuff, the stuff that we're talking about right now. And frankly, that's 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 really no one. I mean, I think Eliza and Dan are doing that more in the Manhattan DA's race getting a little bit more real, which is getting realer, which is, you know, an indication that they'll use that bully pulpit if they get into office. I'm scared. Okay. I said I wasn't going to talk about candidates. I'll tell you, I'm scared of Tali. You know, she's, she's a very, Tali Wines, she's a very, very smart, very competent. Her resume is like the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my entire life. She is a prosecutor. And, um, you know, I fear that you know, because of that resume, because she's amazingly well spoken and uh, she's super competent and she can answer questions really well, that we end up with like even close to more of the same as with Cy Vance, who is somehow considered progressive, but he's one of the most, I think, dangerous and regressive <laughs> pr- uh, prosecutors on, on, you know, in the country, uh, responsible for more jailing than, than most in the country. Man, that's not this is not answering your question at all. I I, <laughs> I I just have such a hard. It's just like I honestly have been like trying to keep my head in the sand on this, and I shouldn't be. But it's just so because it's it's just especially with the mayoral race, it's just so it's like this race to the bottom 
you know, using fear. Um, it's just, it's so upsetting to me. And I'm not like, you know, I'm just not enthused about anyone. <laughs> is it, is it, it reminds me of, this is not like a complete apples to apples comparison, but I cannot help but think about the Dinkins to Giuliani transition and how Giuliani just rode a wave of fear of, of, of crime. And I think crime, I mean, did go up uh, at the times, so, but he rode that into very law and order uh, into office. And, like that playbook works. It works. I don't know if people are uh, candidates are using it so explicitly this time around, um, you know, because uh, George Floyd happened. Uh, but like that playbook is there to be used. And it's, it, it is, it's worked over and over again. It turns out it is, you know, as they say, it's political suicide to be soft on crime, whatever that actually means. Um, it, I mean, I, I, I always am like, it would be so refreshing to have a leader that actually like, just broke through the noise and, and said the truth and pointed out the things that are so obvious. Um, I don't know. Maybe people would actually respect that. Yeah. I don't think that person's in the race right now, but <laughs> one, one day. Well, Scott, look, we could have you on for hours, but I think we gave the audience a lot to chew on here. We appreciate your time. Some of the stuff obviously is dense, but we appreciate you cutting through the noise and we got to have you back much sooner than, than we did. Uh, between last time and this time. Uh, so appreciate you once again. Let's make sure that happens. Good to be on with y'all. Definitely. Peace.